0: The Bible is a pretty popular book. Yeah. Anybody want to guess how many Bibles were sold last year? This is going to be the interactive part, y'all. No idea? Any guesses? How about last week? You know, you know what last week was, right? All right, just testing, right? Oh, good guess, 2 million. How about last month in Lent? All right, think about this. In the U.S. alone, over 350,000 Bibles are sold each week on average. And more so during Holy Week and during the Lenten season and Advent before Christmas. Over 20 million Bibles are sold in America alone, all right, each and every year. 20 million Bibles alone in America. That's a lot of bibles. That's a lot of books. That'll that's a lot of chapters and verses that people we hope are reading, right? And I need to correct myself slightly. I said the Bible is a book, but it's not actually a book. Not really. The Bible is actually a library or collection of many different books all collected together, all put together. Anyone know how many books are in the Bible? All right, yeah. Somebody said 66. Now, uh, this is a little bit of a trick question actually as well because it depends on your faith tradition. The Ethiopic Bible from the 1500s has 84 books, and the King James Bible from the 1600s has 80 books. If you are a former Roman Catholic, the Bible the Roman Catholic Church uses has 73 books, right? And the Bible that we read has 66 books. Confused yet? Yeah. A majority of the books in the Bible are at least 1,700 years old, if not older. Many, many are much older. Many of them are histories and prophecies, are lessons and letters, apocalypses and poems and songs and sermons, morality tales, oral traditions that are passed on by word of mouth, thousands of years ago, and of course, then, the Gospels. Some, some 1,600 years ago, these, all of these, and many other writings were being read and discussed and preached and explored by many different communities or congregations, and about 1,600 years ago, a group of men from various traditions and backgrounds got together at what is essentially a committee meeting, because we do things in committees in the churches. It was a big council, and guided by the Holy Spirit, they put together what we consider the biblical canon today. So yes, the Bible was a group project. Yeah, got to clear that up. These many different books in the Bible are often represented by different beliefs or backgrounds. Various traditions and experiences are present. And again, many different communities and congregations with both similar and different understandings of these writings. And so, ever since the Bible began to be preached, and we hope practiced, and ever since mass circulation and publication... The Bible has remained one of the most popular pieces of written literature ever. The Bible is so popular that it's read by so many and so many different cultures and backgrounds and so many different parts and pieces are picked up and identified in different spaces and places. There are different lines and verses, sayings and phrases that are perhaps shared but not necessarily accurate to the scriptures they sound biblical but they might not quite be right you have no doubt heard some of these maybe you, you've thought them or even repeated them yourself everything happens for a reason or God helps those who help themselves love the sinner hate the sin and the saying that we will explore today God doesn't give you more than you can handle over the next four weeks, we will explore these four phrases, things the Bible never said, and we will consider where these come from and what they get wrong and where they maybe get a little bit right, and we will seek a better understanding of the thought or the intention behind each of these statements. Again, I'm Pastor Jess Horsley. I'm grateful you're here today, and I'm glad that you are learning and exploring with us. Now, I want to go back in time here to Monday, March 17th, 2003. It's three days before the start of the war in Iraq. I was serving as an operations sergeant with 2nd Battalion, 1st Marines. We were positioned the northernmost part of Kuwait just a few clicks south of the Iraqi southern border in the city of Umm Qasar, and we knew we were going to war because the commanding general had just ordered us pizza. (laughs) I kid you not, there was a line of pizza delivery trucks the likes of which you have never seen outside of the gate of our makeshift camp, and we knew that we were eating good. We knew that we were going to fight. And so most of us were sitting around and we were on our cots going over battle plans. We were preparing ourselves for what was to come. We were making phone calls to spouses or families or friends back home. Many of us were playing board games or card games to keep our minds off of what was going to happen. And many of us also were praying. We were praying together to seek some kind of solace in a relationship, a connection to the divine, and others who were praying together as well. And one of the officers, a a chaplain, a career military man, who was trying to help us keep focus, who was trying to keep us calm and collected, he said those words that, again, you have perhaps heard as well when you... When you were facing a life-changing experience or some challenge or hardship, some difficulty, perhaps heartbreak or loss or suffering, those words that you, again, perhaps have said or even repeated, God doesn't give you more than you can handle. God doesn't give you more than you can handle. You've heard this, right? We've all, I think, heard this. It sounds like something that might be in the Bible, Where? Where does it actually say that, or where does this come from? And the question we really have to ask is, is this really helpful, right? What's it actually mean? Now, 2,000 years ago, nearly 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Paul, the man who is responsible for writing a majority of the New Testament... All right. He started churches. He planted churches all over the near Middle East in Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea and also Corinth. And Paul wrote letters to these churches to encourage them, to empower them, to challenge them, and most often to correct them. And here in this letter to the church in Corinth in the first century, what we call 1 Corinthians. We think it's written around 53 or 54 CE, current era. Paul writes because the church is experiencing some issues. Sounds like church. The church is experiencing some challenges and is facing some need for correction. And so Paul writes because, not unlike the church today, the church is struggling To figure out how to worship and how to show and share love with those who are not in church. How to best represent Jesus the Christ in the world in which they live. And so here in this first letter to the church in Corinth, he writes about the divisions within the church. He writes about immorality and he writes about about idolatry amongst the church members. He reminds the Corinthian church that throughout history, okay, their history and ours, even God-loving people have divided themselves and been immoral to each other and have created idols. And so here is Paul reminding the church at that time of what has happened, of how history can and often does repeat itself, and how history can serve can serve as an example for them at that time and for us even today. So here are these words from the first century, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Remember our history, friends, and be warned. All our ancestors were led by the providential cloud and taken miraculously through the sea. Anybody want to guess what he's talking about here? It's the Exodus, y'all, right? It's the Prince of... You know, you seen the Prince of Egypt movie? All right, all right. They... They, the Israelites, they went through the waters in a baptism like ours as Moses led them from enslaving death to salvation life. They ate and drank identical food and drink, meals provided daily by God. Manna from heaven, right? They drank from the rock, God's foundation for them, and the rock was Christ. Paul's looking back and saying, that rock was Christ. But just experiencing God's wonder and grace didn't seem to mean much. Most of them were defeated by temptation during the hard times in the desert. And God was not pleased. The same thing could happen to us. We must be on guard so that we never get caught up in wanting our own way as others did. Our position Next slide. Yeah. We must never try to get Christ to serve us. Oh, sorry, go back. There we go. Nope. There, okay. Well, we jumped ahead. These are, yeah, there we go. We must never try to get Christ to serve us instead of us serving Christ. We must be careful not to stir up discontent. These all are all warning markers, danger in our history books, written down so that we don't repeat these mistakes. Our positions in the story are parallel, and we are just as capable of messing it up as they were. Don't be so naive and self-confident. You, and we, today, are not exempt. You could fall flat on your face as easily as anyone else. So forget about self-confidence. It's useless. Ooh. Cultivate God-confidence. Confidence. No test or temptation that comes your way is beyond the course of what others have had to face. And you need to remember, all you need to remember is that God will never let you down. God will never let you be pushed past your limit. God will always be there to help you come through it. Now, this last verse here, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6, says, God will never let you be pushed past your limit. Some other translations say, God will not permit you to be tempted more than you can stand, or God will not let any test come on you which you are not able to resist. And these each and every one sound a little bit like God doesn't give you more than you can handle. Right? Right? You can understand how somebody might get there, and yet, for far too long, we have perhaps misinterpreted this, something that the Bible never said. And we must acknowledge and realize that this passage is referring, Paul is referring to first, temptation, temptation. It's not everything that you experience or endure or have to handle in life. This passage here, what Paul refers to here, is temptation, this desire to do inappropriate or unhealthy or unwise things. The Greek word that Paul uses, paradso, parazo, is the same root word that Jesus uses when he teaches us to pray the prayer we say each and every week. From Matthew 6 and Luke Eleven, Lead us not into parazzo, to temptation. When we read Scripture, we discover a God who does not tempt us, nor lure us, nor lead us, or entice us towards unhealthy and unwise decisions. But rather, when we read Scripture, we discover and find a God who seeks for us comfort and hope. And Here's a bit of the rub, right? Because I think if we're honest, if, if you've ever used that, that saying, that statement, God doesn't give you more than you can handle, what you're trying to do, what the person is trying to do is perhaps share comfort and hope, right? God doesn't give you more than you can handle. It's meant to be affirmation or assurance not unlike Rob Schneider in 1990 masterpiece of a movie the Waterboy You can do it. You can do it. It's a masterpiece. You can do it. God doesn't give you more than you can handle. You can do it. But the question then becomes, what happens when we can't? I mean, seriously, what, what happens when we can't do it? When that chaplain all those years ago said those words to me to, and to the other Marines that were with us preparing for combat, he was trying to comfort us, to encourage us, to remind us of our training, to prepare our hearts and our minds for what we were to face. And yet, many of us were not ready. Many of those I served with did not come home. And some who came home would later take their own lives years later, years after. This is perhaps where this phrase fails us. Yeah. It's where it breaks our hearts even more. The goodwill and the intention behind the words do not deliver. This this phrase, God doesn't give you more than you can handle, it also assumes, right, it assumes that God is the one that's giving us all the the stuff that we have to deal with in our lives. All of the hardship and the, the challenges and the illnesses and the violence and the brokenness and the pain that each and every one of us have to experience as a part of our existence on this planet as a part of life. It assumes that God just gives it to you and says, here, this is for you. And that's, that's simply not true. That's not biblical, that's not Christ-like. God does not give us war or violence or stress or anxiety. God does not give us sicknesses or addictions or abuse or chronic pain. God does not give us mental illness. God does not give us broken relationships or any kind of injury. God does not give us the need to work three jobs to afford housing and food for our families. Or God doesn't give us inflation or poverty or homelessness or hunger or any of the other thousands and thousands and thousands of oppressive things that each and every one of us deal with in our lives. God does not create injustice or oppression or evil. That is not who God is. That is not a part of God's character. God does not will these things into happening or want them to happen. When we read the Gospels, we find and we know a Christ who desires for us to experience goodness and joy and forgiveness and mercy and hope and most especially love. When we read scriptures, we find God seeks to bring all of us, all of us, each and every one of you, and each and every person everywhere, all of us into right relationship with all of creation. Next week, Pastor chun Ho will explore this idea more when we explore and unpack the phrase, everything happens for a reason. Again, something the Bible never said. So no. No, 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 no. God does not give us all the struggles or any of the struggles or challenges or hurts or heartbreaks that we experience or endure. God does not desire any of that for any of us, for you. When we read scripture, we find rather over and over and over again what God tells us in Deuteronomy 31 and what the prophet Isaiah knew and what the Israelite leader Joshua believed and we understand that it's a promise that Jesus makes to us in Matthew 28, I will be with you always. God is with you always to help you handle whatever comes. God is with you always to help you handle whatever comes. This is what Paul is reminding us of in 1 Corinthians 10 when he says, forget about self-confidence, it's useless. And it's not that you don't need confidence, but he says it's cultivate God confidence. No test or temptation that comes your way is beyond the course of what others have had to face. All you need is to remember that God will never let you down, that God will never let you be pushed past your limit, that God will always be there to help you through it. I will be with you always. God is with you always. Now, I was preparing for this a few weeks ago, and I shared this with someone else, and they said, great. So, uh, Pastor Jess, I have a question for you. When's God going to show up? I mean, it's a legit question, y'all. Like, so, great. I mean, so when is God going to actually do something about it? Because we got a lot of problems and issues, y'all. There's not a week goes by that there's not multiple mass shootings in our country. We have people who can't afford, and they're working three jobs, and they can't afford to live in the place where they work, or the food, or the medical expenses that they have. When is God going to actually do something about all of this stuff that all of us are having to deal with all the time? The things that keep happening over and over and over again. And perhaps this is the biggest myth or assumption of this statement that God doesn't give you more than you can handle because we were never meant to handle it alone. We were never meant to handle anything we endure or experience alone. We are not meant to live life alone. Remember what Paul says Forget self-confidence. It's useless. Cultivate God confidence. And where do we find God confidence? Where do you think we find it? Where do I find it? It's in you. It's in us right here in community together in gathering and growing and giving and going with other people in seeking full life together in Christ. And this is perhaps the most challenging and beautiful part of this. We were not created to experience or endure violence and war or division and heartbreak or illness or injustice or job loss or the passing of loved ones or medical diagnoses or any of life, good or bad. We were not meant to do it alone. God created us all of us, each and every person that you encounter everywhere, to be in right relationship with each other, in connection, and community. So what's that look like? It means showing up. It means being present. It means being Christ for each other and for the people that you don't even know that you encounter in the line at Walmart. I use Walmart a lot because I'm at Walmart a lot. But there is not a place in this world that needs more Jesus than Walmart checkout lines. You know what I'm talking about. Especially self-checkout lines. I'm just saying. I was there yesterday. Whether you're going to worship right here, whether you're picking up your groceries, whether you're dropping off the kids at school and somebody cuts you off in line, right? Right? Whether you're at work or at school, whether you're walking the dog around the neighborhood or just simply taking out the trash or going for a drive, show up for each other in love with hope. Be Christ in the world. Be the one who brings the goodness and the joy and the forgiveness and the mercy, the hope, and most especially, be the one who brings the love. Because this is the gospel message. Amen? Amen. Let us go to God and pray. Good and gracious God, Scripture does not tell us that you give us more than we can handle. Rather, God, you say that you will always be present with us, that there is nowhere we can go, there is nothing we can do to separate ourselves from you. And what that looks like, God, is for us to show up, to be present, to do something in this world that so desperately needs you. Help us to be Christ, to be Christians, little Christ, everywhere we go, in each and every space, so that we too truly are, God, transformers of this world, that we too might bring about the kingdom. For that is what you seek. May it be so. Amen.